Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, a nationwide vaccine mandate and a war on rights and freedoms in Austria, plus a defense of carbon dioxide. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. We are going to be talking a little later on in the show about some positive developments in the world of science and tech that are achieving what the government says are its environmental objectives without government subsidies and without carbon taxes. A little bit of a good news story about the power of industry and entrepreneurialism. But I'm going to warn you up front that this first part of the show here is not at all sunshine and roses. You may remember I, I shared a, a couple of weeks back that I was in at the beginning of the month Austria with my wife. We had a, a little vacation there. I had never been. We, we spent a, a couple of days in Vienna and I was just enjoying it. And, and at one point I remarked as we were sitting down and, and eating Wiener Schnitzel and I was drinking an, an Einspanner, which is a, an Austrian type of coffee, which is really just espresso with whipped cream. No reason I'm telling you that, except I, I would like to be having a, an Einspanner right now. And at the end of it, I, I was just remarking to my wife on how incredibly normal it felt in Austria. It, it didn't feel the way it does in, in lockdown Ontario. People felt very laid back and relaxed. When you were going to a restaurant, yes, they asked for documentation, but it wasn't just a vaccine passport. You could also say that you had natural immunity or you could also provide a negative test. So at least you had some options. And then you fast forward a couple of weeks and Austria is no longer the bastion of normalcy. Austria is the most locked down region in the world with the most restrictive vaccine mandate in the world. And well, except for Turkmenistan. But if, if that's your model country for public policy, I'm not sure we have all that much in common. Austria was seeing case counts on the rise, so at first they said we're going to plunge the unvaccinated into a lockdown. We're going to make it so the only way you can leave your house and, and do anything is if you're vaccinated. Well, after that, cases still continued to rise. It, it didn't at all put a dent in what Austria was seeing as its case trajectory here. So then they decided to plunge the country into a nationwide lockdown and also announce mandatory vaccinations starting in February. So that means that within the next three months, it will be required if you are in Austria to have a COVID-19 vaccination, whether or not you have acquired immunity, whether or not you're prepared to test negative, whether or not it sounds like you may have a conscientious or religious objection, they are making vaccination mandatory. Now, I want to make a, a very abundantly clear point here. This is not mandatory to work in an office, mandatory to board a plane, mandatory to go out to eat at a restaurant. All of these things that we're told are, are actually voluntary when, when they're not voluntary. No, we're, we're talking about mandatory, mandatory. To exist, to live as a citizen of Austria, you will have to be vaccinated. And they haven't released the fine print of this yet. I, I Believe me, I was looking into it. There was one report in The Guardian that said it was likely going to be an administrative fine, which, if you don't pay, will be converted to a jail sentence. 
So in Austria, it may well be that come February, you are forced to either get the jab or end up in jail in a Western developed country. Like I said, Turkmenistan also has mandatory vaccination, but let's just focus on Austria here. And Germany, incidentally, is not taking anything off the table. That was what the German health minister said. They're not going to take anything off the table, which, I mean, what could possibly go wrong when German leaders refuse to take options off the table, right? But the reality of this is that you as an Austrian citizen have had your rights taken away. They simply do not exist. And I mentioned, because I I wrote a a column about this in my newsletter the other day, I I said, you know, is Austria just going to penalize people or are they actually going to go door to door uh, with needles and forcing needles into the arms of people that don't want them? And the reason I asked that question is because I, I said, once you've crossed that threshold, as Austria has, to say that your citizens do not have rights, to say that your citizens' bodily autonomy is actually non-existent and it belongs to the state. Once you've crossed that threshold and you've leapt over that hurdle, the only thing that matters is, well, how are you going to enforce it? And that's a question of degrees because they've already done the hard part, which is say that we do not believe our citizens have rights. And if you look at something that the Austrian chancellor had said, Alexander Schallenberg, he had said that he lamented how long it had taken for him to have the political capital to do this, basically. He said, quote, for a long time, the consensus in this country was that we didn't want mandatory vaccination for a long time, perhaps too long. And as I said in my newsletter, this this is not just a get the jab or else policy because there is no or else option. So what you see here are European countries that are very much ramping up their efforts here. The World Health Organization, uh, Director Hans Kluge on the weekend said that countries need to do more mask mandates, more vaccine passports, because otherwise there are going to be a half a million dead Europeans or half a million more dead Europeans from COVID by the spring. This is, this is what they're saying, that countries need to double down on all of the policies that they've had in place for much of the last two years that have led us to this point. But, oh, they didn't work then, but they're, they're definitely going to work this time. They're, they're really going to do it this time. So they're calling for a crackdown. And undeniably, citizens are not having any of it. You look over the weekend alone, protests in Vienna, in Rome, actually not even just in the cities, all over these countries, in Austria, in Italy, in the Czech Republic, in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, police opened fire on protesters. Police actually fired in because the crowd had descended into rioting. And again, I I deplore rioting. I deplore political violence. I think it's morally wrong. I also think it it is counterproductive because it it never makes the point you want it to make. It it turns people against you. But I also am, am very aware that these things are not all that surprising now when people feel pushed to the brink, as they do in these countries. I mean, you just take a look at Austria just for one moment here. And Austria is a country that has a, a deep history with, with autocratic governments. So, so the fact that it's going down this road does not escape anyone who even has a passing understanding of history and the historic implications of, of things like this. But in Austria, if you are a citizen that doesn't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason, your rights, like I said a moment ago, do not exist anymore. Your rights as an individual do not exist. So when the government is doing this, what choice do you have left? 
Surely there's an argument for self-defense when you're talking about forcible vaccination. And again, not just vaccination policies that close off parts of society to you, which I think are wrong, but they give the illusion of choice. But no, a, a policy that actually takes away your choice. Mandatory vaccination. And the reason I'm so passionate about this, firstly, because I had a, a lovely time in Austria and it, it's shameful to see a country that is so beautiful, that has such history, that has so much to offer, go down this road from which there really is no return. But also because as we've seen throughout the pandemic, if it can happen in one place, it can happen elsewhere. And I know Austria is a bit unique in that it's got a lower vaccination rate than other countries, certainly including Canada. So that's what is setting it apart, a lot of the proponents of this policy are saying. But the one thing that we know is that people are going to be devaccinated at a certain point. The fully vaccinated people are going to be told at, at some point, and I don't know when it is, that their two doses aren't enough and they've got to add a third dose on there or a fourth dose with whichever wave we're in. And that, that was the other comment made by the Austrian chancellor. He said, we, we've got to protect against a fifth, sixth and seventh wave. So they're already thinking, you know, seven waves to flatten the curve or whatever the case may be now. So at a certain point in Canada, the vaccination rate will go down with one of two things taking place. One, the number of vaccination as number of vaccinations needed to be considered fully vaccinated will increase. Number two, the eligibility will increase. And that's what's happening this week. Now that children aged five to 11 can get vaccinated, the denominator in those vaccine statistics has gotten larger. The denominator. So now with more people eligible, the vaccination rate in Canada will understandably drop down because it's a smaller percentage of the eligible population that has been vaccinated. And if you don't think there are going to be a lot of people that are pro-vaccine themselves, that do their part, that draw a line when it comes to their children, you are sorely mistaken. And, and just anecdotally, the number of stories I'm hearing from people who have said, yeah, I got it, I had to for work, or I was fine with it, or for travel, whatever. But for kids, it's, nope, my children are simply, full stop, not getting vaccinated. And, and there's, I, I can't quantify it, it's just anecdotal, but I know it exists, and I know this is going to be something that we're hearing a lot of. And, and if schools start mandating vaccination for five, six, seven-year-olds, there is going to be rioting outside public schools all across Ontario, all across Canada. And, and it's also going to bring up other questions about consent. I, I want to read from the Niagara Region Health website. Now, this is not a page about COVID-19 specifically. This is a page about school vaccination. And, and there are some vaccinations that are available to students, uh, like for HPV or for, um, I think there's a, another one, the hepatitis vaccines that you get in, in grade seven or eight, whatever it is. So this is in general. However, I think it's important to know the Niagara Region's interpretation of the law. They say on this page here, age of vaccination consent. Under the Healthcare Consent Act, be advised that there is no minimum age to provide consent. This means that your child can consent to be vaccinated without parental consent. And they put without in bold to really drive home the points to parents that your children can be vaccinated if they consent. Now, one of the hallmarks of consent is informed consent. 
And this is something that the act does specify, that you need to be able to make informed consent. And there may not be an age, but how many five-year-olds are going to be capable of making informed consent on something like this? So you already have health officials that are laying the groundwork to say that they are going to be vaccinating children without parental consent. They think they have a legal mandate to do it. You're going to get kids that are on a bandwagon effect, kids that don't understand the scope of it, kids who may not even know if, if they have some reason medically that they can't get a vaccination. In this case, you'd hope that the parents would make that abundantly clear to the kid and the school. But there are going to be throughout schools across Ontario, across Alberta, across BC, across the country, students getting vaccinated without parental consent, potentially without parental knowledge, and potentially with the perception of parental consent. This is going to be a big thing. I've already heard stories about cases where uh, if you can't reach a parent, it's kind of just presumed that they would have consented because, you know, after all, what sort of Neanderthal or troglodyte wouldn't want their kid vaccinated? Surely everyone wants this, right? So this is going to be the next frontier on this. Again, piece by piece, things that should be matters of individual choice are no longer treated that way. And forget about whether there's going to be a malicious uh, vaccination of people who haven't truly consented. Even just the accidental vaccination risk, I think, is quite significant. People that are trying to do the right thing, that just assume that there's parental consent or a kid doesn't know, something like that. I mean, the whole point is that when you start putting schools in charge of things like this, you're losing the ability for parents to do it. I would say the parent needs to actually be standing right beside their child in order to consent or have a form where it's abundantly clear what they wanted and, and what they sought. But if the school's now saying that kids can consent without uh, their parents, then all of a sudden, what are we doing? Are we making the five-year-olds sign the documents or are we making the five-year-olds actually read about the side effects, the benefits, the pros and cons, all of that? So these are going to be the new frontiers, as I said, of, of this. And, and a lot of parents will not want anything to do with it. But if they start extending the vaccine passport to children, if your kids want to go to a play place, if your kids want to join a sports team, if your kids want to take piano lessons, oh, well, your five-year-old's got to be vaccinated, your six-year-old's got to be vaccinated, and, and it won't end here. Uh, Pfizer is running, and I think they, they've been running since February or March of, of this year, maybe even longer, trials on children as young as six months old on infants. So making the COVID vaccine basically part of your measles, mumps, rubella, uh, infant vaccination. So that's what they're trying to do here. And, and I should specify, and I, again, it's a necessary disclaimer. I have no issue, no issue with people getting vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. I own that decision. I'm happy with it. But I think people can make whatever decision is right for them. But you, in order to make a decision that's right for you, you first off have to have the legal right to make it, which takes the Austrian approach off the table. But you also have to know what decision you're making. And when you have health officials that are already trying to lay the groundwork for vaccination without parental consent of children potentially as young as five years old, which is where the, the COVID vaccine is approved, you don't truly have informed consent. And more importantly, you have a system that is going to pit parents against the schools in which their children are students.
You know, speaking of the German health minister, I, I want to read this line from uh, from Jens Spahn. That is uh, my German at work there. Not particularly great. I apologize. But the German health minister has said by the end of the winter, citizens will be vaccinated, cured or dead from COVID. This is something that, you know, is trying to put the fear into people. But it also suggests that the German government does not believe there's an additional category there of being unvaccinated by choice. Now, a lot of them, again, like Austria, Austria doesn't really care now about natural immunity, despite a wealth of research that says natural immunity can be very powerful, in some cases more than some of the vaccines. But he's saying, no, you got three options. You can be vaccinated, you can be cured, or you can be dead. And I don't think it's going to be all that surprising if Germany goes down the road that Austria has gone down and Germany is a country of what 80 80 some odd million now so when you have countries that large western countries that are mandating vaccination it's going to justify other countries following suit and do not think for a moment that it could not happen in Canada because it absolutely could and we've absolutely learned throughout this entire process that countries tend to be taking their cues from each other and not always in a good way. You look at Austria, which plunged citizens into one of the largest lockdowns we've seen anywhere in the world. Even still, they've talked about not restoring some of these travel rights until well into 2023. And to look at these people protesting in the streets in all these European cities, I honestly say power to you. And again, despite the severity of this, despite the attacks on liberty, I do not believe violent protests are the way to achieve things, but certainly protest and be heard. I think it was in Vienna on Saturday, tens of thousands of people were out in the streets saying to the government, we are not going to take this. Now, I don't know what the government does if by February people simply are not taking the jab. I mean, do they have enough jails in Austria to put all of the unvaccinated behind bars? I would venture a guess to say they don't. But is it a bluff? Probably not, because they're clearly trying to escalate things. If they're just trying to scare people, but they don't intend to follow through, well, I, I still don't think it's right, but we'll find out soon enough, I suppose. But the reality is, do not look at these things that happen in other countries as though they're in a silo. Don't look at it like it's on a television screen in a movie, because this is very much real life. And if you do not stand up for your rights, no one else will. We've got to take a break here. When we come back, talking about the glories of carbon with Colin Craig. That's here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we did a panel on this very show talking about the federal government's so-called just transition, and we decided to tell the other side of the story and, and shine a light on the work that the oil and gas sector is doing to achieve what the government says are its stated objectives at reducing the almighty emission tally that is uh, one of the things that Canada has committed us to doing as a country with the Paris Agreement and now with the Glasgow Agreement. And I've had some great feedback from listeners and viewers of that panel, amazed that all of these uh, evil, scary oil and gas companies were doing all these things that you just never hear about in the mainstream media. Well, it isn't just the oil and gas sector. Industry itself is taking one thing that we're told is that the bad guy of industry, carbon dioxide, and turning it into lots of really cool things. One in particular that I think we all can enjoy, uh, perhaps at the end of the week, but I want to talk about this with Colin Craig from secondstreet.org which has published this great report, 25 Innovative Carbon Tech Examples. Colin, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. 
So let's start with the first question here. Why did you decide to do the dive into this and, and start pulling out all these examples? Uh, some of which I, I will say, and we'll get into this very shortly, are, are on the more obscure side, one might say. Well, I, I, you know, I kept hearing anecdotally about these really cool things that entrepreneurs were creating with carbon dioxide instead of letting it release up into the atmosphere. And then I thought, you know, let's see if we can do a report on this, see how much is out there. And uh, as you alluded to, our report's called 25 Examples. We found lots of really cool things that entrepreneurs are doing. And we did this also because so much of the discussion about climate change in Canada, it's doom and gloom. It's pessimistic. I don't think that's how leaders should be approaching a problem. I think they need to approach things with optimism and, and spread the good news stories that are out there so that we can inspire more people to be looking at this kind of uh, research and work. Yeah, and, and just to set the stage here with the political agenda, we originally had commitments that Canada made under the Paris Agreement to reduce our, our CO2 emissions by about 30%. Justin Trudeau kind of on the back of a napkin changed that about a year ago to say 40 to 45%. Reducing emissions is uh, something that can be achieved in a couple of different ways. You can actually stop producing or conceivably you could take what you are producing and take it out of the atmosphere and apply it to other things. And, and these these 25 items on your list, they fall into that latter category, do they not? Yeah, certainly most of them, most of them do. It's, it's taking CO2, like you say, instead of, let it, instead of letting it go into the atmosphere, you make something with it. So one of the examples that I love is from a company in New York, it's called Air Company. I'll just put it right here for a moment so you can see it. It's vodka. And what they've done is they found a, made, a way to make vodka using two ingredients, carbon dioxide and water. And that's it. It's it's really amazing how they've done this. And if you think about the formula for ethanol, which is the main ingredient in vodka, it's made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen atoms. And you can find those three atoms in H2O and CO2. So they found a way to take those two uh, uh, ingredients, so to speak, and make uh, vodka out of it. But there's certainly lots of other really interesting things that entrepreneurs are doing. Uh, not just uh, outside of Canada, certainly in Canada's borders, including a lot in Calgary. So just to go back to the vodka for a moment here, we may not get off the vodka, but just for a moment at least, I mean, we could, if we nationalize this, we could probably uh, achieve the 45% reduction in CO2 right there. Uh, I could probably account for about 15% of that some days. We just have to replace everyone's drinks at the dinner table with vodka and then we'll be fine. <laughs> Forget about Tim Hortons. Our new national drink is uh, is air vodka, the uh, the CO two capturing vodka. Okay, uh, is, is that the only edible one on the list? Uh, no, actually, there's another really cool one that uh, it's a company in Ontario. Actually, it's called Pond Technologies, and what they've done it's it's fascinating. I love it. What they're doing is they're taking the uh, exhaust that would come out of say like a smokestack, and they are channeling that CO two that's coming out. They use some pipes. They put it into a tank. The tank is full of algae, and the algae eat the CO2. For lack of a better words, I'm not a chemist, but they basically consume it. They're able to grow, and then eventually what that company does is it processes the algae, and then they can turn it into all kinds of different products. Uh, they're trying to turn it into biofuels, bioplastics, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, and then including one ingredient, uh, phycocyanin, I believe is how you pronounce it, and it's uh, basically blue, blue food coloring. So that blue food coloring is used in things like M&Ms. So that's another great example. I guess we'll, we'll have vodka to drink, we'll have M &M, blue M&Ms for dinner, and then we're going to solve climate change. 
You know, it's funny because obviously these are just a couple of novel examples here, and, and I don't think we'll, we'll go through the whole list of 25. We'll post a link to it here, but but there are some that are, are pretty critical items. You've, you've got batteries that are in here. You've got uh, bioplastics as well. I, I mean, we, we always hear about how packaging is supposed to be the great nemesis of, uh, of environmental concerns. Well, here's a way to kill two birds with one stone right there. Start using CO2 in the production of, of packaging. Yeah, and and one I love is uh, it's a company in Calgary. They're uh, starting to make carbon nanofibers with CO two, and as the name suggests, it it has carbon in it. You obviously can get carbon from CO two, and we already use as a society carbon nanofibers. You'll find them in all kinds of different products. So if you pick up a lightweight badminton racket, you'll probably see sometimes that on the the uh, the racket it'll say that it's made with uh, carbon graphite or carbon fiber or whatever. Um, Bicycle frames, those are lightweight. So we're already using them. The difference now is that this company is able to make that material using captured CO2, again, instead of letting it go into the atmosphere. So there there are so many amazing things that entrepreneurs are doing with uh, capturing CO2. I think we need to talk about it more. You know, I hear these stories about kids in schools that are uh, growing, they're, they're having anxiety problems and and other mental health issues because of climate change. And I think, my goodness, like tell them the good news stories. Like, you know, that's not leadership to just scare all these kids, give them some hope. Why don't we try and encourage them to be the next generation of engineers that can uh, start to find other cool ways of using CO2. Yeah. And the one that jumped out at me too, again, just on an amusing note is, is yoga mats and, and yeah. the people that are using those yoga mats, I, I think demographically are the most likely to think that uh, CO2 is, is again, this thing that we need to just completely purge and eradicate. Great. Another way to kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. We actually met with the company recently that was making some of the material for those yoga mats. And in that case, you know, the, the whole yoga mat material is not from carbon dioxide. But it's, it's part of it. It's an ingredient that they're able to, to use for that. And uh, like you say, there's often ways that you can kill two birds with one stone with, with what these uh, entrepreneurs are doing. There's a great Calgary story here, a company called Clean O2, where they uh, are able to take, uh, it was, I believe it was created by a, a, someone in the sort of plumbing and heating and ventilation sector. They thought, well, why are we letting all this CO2 go into the atmosphere? Let's capture it. And they found a way to capture it and create a, a product that's used for soap. So you can use soap uh, that's made from, from CO2. And the, the thing I like about this is that you, you have politicians often using the word pollution and they're really trying to demonize the word carbon dioxide and carbon. And it's, you know, entrepreneurs are kind of looking at it a, a little bit more uh, level-headed and they're saying, well, wait a second, carbon's a material that's in everything, or not everything, but a lot of different things, including humans. Um, and it's, it's just a resource that we can make stuff with. So I think entrepreneurs are the ones who are really taking the leadership role in the issue of climate change and reducing emissions, rather than politicians that so often are flying off the handle, they're using, uh, you know, inflammatory language in that. So, you know, I, in our policy brief, we talk about all kinds of different things, including, uh, you know, as you talked about at the beginning of your show, just people in the oil and gas industry being really supportive of the sector. The, uh, you know, I mentioned Air Company, the New York company that made the vodka, well, they were a finalist in a, uh, an X prize that was co-sponsored by the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance. So you're seeing lots of examples like that where industry is supporting these entrepreneurs and they're helping these companies out. They want to do what, what they think is best for the environment. Uh, the Canadian Gas Association, they've been heavily supportive of uh, efforts by industry to 
um, try to reduce emissions and up and coming startups and that. So, you know, it, it's it really on this issue, I think the leadership that we need to see is happening by the private sector. It's happening um, by entrepreneurs. And it's, it's how we've addressed past environmental challenges. If you look throughout history, it's not by politicians pounding their fists. It's by entrepreneurs finding a way to address the issue at hand. Yeah, and, and that panel that I, I did a couple of weeks ago, we, we had a couple of entrepreneurs that have been doing a lot in this space. And one of the things that was most interesting to me about this is that they're getting virtually no government support. Now, I should say, as, as true entrepreneurs, they aren't looking for government support. But if the government is saying that this is the top priority, it would be great to look at, instead of reinventing the wheel, organizations and, and entrepreneurs and investors that are already doing things that are working towards that stated objective. And, and the point that I think a lot of listeners took away from that, and certainly I did as the moderator, was that the government isn't really looking for true solutions to this. They're, they're looking for basically justification to declare a war on this oil and gas sector. And, and I'm wondering if in the conversations you've had with entrepreneurs and startups that are on this list, if that's true of their story as well, where they're kind of doing this alone uh, in spite of, of government or certainly without government. Yeah, you know, I, th I think there has been some cases where they have received uh, support from government. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, like you say, they're, they're, I think, naturally have a mindset where they don't need, they're not looking around mm -hmm. for, for government handouts. I actually think there is a role for government to, to support uh, industry um, with this. And I think there's a few things that government can do that I think a lot of people across the political spectrum would support myself. I don't think we need as much government in our lives as we have, but I think there's a role for government here. It could be something as simple as, you know, you often see the federal government spending millions of dollars each year on research grants in the post-secondary sector. When you go through that list, there's a lot of really crazy stuff. It's not a priority. Um, what they could do is say, okay, if we're going to spend this money on, on research grants in the post-secondary sector, well, then put it towards the carbon capture issue because you, you keep telling us that it's a crisis. Well, if it's a crisis, that's where you should be diverting your resources. Um, and we talk about a couple of the silly examples in our report. I think if your your listeners and viewers go through it, they'd agree that it's the things that Ottawa spends money on in that sector. It's it's not uh, not necessarily a priority. So that's one way Ottawa could support the sector without spending more money. Just take the existing money and redirect it to, towards this issue. Um, it could even be something as simple as drawing attention to it. I mean, our politicians have huge social media followings. Talk about it. Talk about the companies in your, your city, your town, your, your constituency, whatever, that are doing these things so that they get more publicity and attention. And from that, they might even, these companies might even be able to get some venture capital raise from the private sector. So I think there are things. Yeah, don't, don't just demonize the entire space, which is, I think, what's happening now. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think there's a role for government to, to help out. It doesn't always have to be the one they're cutting a big check. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's things that can be done there. And another idea in the report that I thought as well was was something that would certainly conform with, with my goals for government, keeping it small and, and pro-industry. And that was just offering tax credits for companies that are uh, doing things in the carbon capture space. And I, this is logical. If we're going to be penalizing through a carbon tax large emitters, why would we not incentivize to companies that are doing things to actually have a net negative impact on emissions? Yeah, not just net zero, but net negative, which is what these companies are doing. Yeah, and, and that's certainly one, one thing that can be done. Ottawa's looking at uh, bringing in a credit. They're kind of at a consultation stage. Um, they have uh, said that they're going to be bringing this in. I, I forget the amount. It's somewhere around 30 megatons uh, is what they're talking about, supporting. Well, 
the amount that Canada emits each year in carbon dioxide, it's over 700 megatons. So they're saying, well, we're going to do this. This is the size of the problem. Well, then make that tax credit uh, much more available to a larger swath so that you can actually start to address that issue in a more meaningful way rather than uh, just sort of this token little thing. So we'll have to wait and see what kind of details Ottawa brings forward with that plan. But I think there's enormous potential in this sector. Uh, entrepreneurs are, are, are pretty amazing at addressing this, as we've seen. And we've talked about vodka and badminton rackets. Another great one is diamonds. You know, there's a company <laughs> in New York that's making diamonds from CO2. So there's all kinds of wild and, and amazing things that entrepreneurs are doing. And I, I think governments uh, shouldn't over underestimate what, what they can do. The report over at secondstreet.org, 25 Innovative Carbon Tech Examples. The uh, co-author, president of secondstreet.org, Colin Craig, joins me. Colin, always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I can't uh, I can't toast uh, your work with a uh, glass of air vodka yet. I'll have to order mine, but I do appreciate you uh, putting this together and coming on today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. appreciate your time and uh, helping to spread the word about uh, what's happening. That's great. I want to. I want to try that vodka. So I am going to reach out to the company. I'm going to try to get one, and I'm going to try to get them on the show because, like I said, this is I think a great example of what we should be doing more of. You're you're, you're going to get more flies with honey than vinegar. I hate resorting to cliches and proverbs and all of those sorts of things, but that's the truth. And and we know that the punitive carbon tax only makes Canada uncompetitive. Whereas if you incentivize people that are doing the things that the government claims are its primary goals, if you're being honest about it, which I realize is a, a big, big if, if you're being honest about it, these are the sorts of companies you should be welcoming in the landscape of, of this country and also other countries as well. As, as we heard, and it's not always uh, Canadian companies that are doing these things, but certainly a lot of Canadian companies and, and in particular, a lot of Alberta companies on that list as examples of the uh, 25 uh, carbon tech innovators so that does it for us for today gotta wrap things up here my thanks to colin craig for coming on the show and all of you for tuning in we'll be back in just a couple days time with more of canada's most irreverent talk show here on true north this is the andrew lawton show thank you god bless and good day thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news